Good morning, everyone. And thank you to the young people who have now all gone, yeah? Yeah, well, um, it's great to see uh, young people involved. I do remember the very first time I took part in a public service, public meeting, and my left leg was wobbling through nerves at such a rate. It was like uh, an Elvis impression, it, it really was. <laughs> nerves had just overwhelmed me. And um, I guess now, sort of nearly 50 years later, uh, nerves are still there, but you learn to control them and um, direct them. It's never good to be too confident when you come, come up front. Well, as you've probably picked up, we're looking at a certain part of the Bible that talks about uh, battle and the armor that God supplies for us. And this is part of the study that you've been having for a number of weeks in the book of Ephesians. So we've had the passage read to us, but if you have a Bible handy, you might want to turn back to Ephesians in chapter 6. What was the number of the church edition, the page that it's on? I got the 77 bit. 1177. 1177. And um, I won't read it again, but we're looking from verse 10 onwards. So we've come to the end of your study. Um, so you've been doing this a number of weeks. What have you learned? Oh. What can you remember? <laughs> Any, anyone like the Anything that sort of stuck out from you as you've looked through this book over the past few weeks? This always encourages the, the speakers so much when this happens, <laughs> when it just goes so quiet. Yes? God's got a great plan for the church. That's good. Yeah. And each of us individually within that. We need to work in harmony with each other. Unity is a big theme in the book of Ephesians, isn't it? Uh, God knew about it beforehand. What's happened in Jesus, what's happening to the church is not an afterthought. God planned this a long time ago. Yeah, okay. Well, I'm, it's not another quiz. I'm not handing out footballs and things as a, some sort of token there. Um, it, it starts, doesn't it? I'm not going to spend a long time recapping, but it starts with that great hymn of praise in chapter 1. I think um, in the original Greek in which this was written, there isn't a, a, a comma or a full stop. There's no punctuation in those first few verses where Paul is just praising God for what we have come into. Once we put our trust in Jesus Christ, he has so much for us. And he has not only reconciled us to himself, but he has broken down those barriers and those walls that are built up between people. And particularly at the, the time of the early church, the barrier that was there between Jewish believers and Gentile believers. And all that God has for his people, the Jews, he now has for everyone. And that middle wall of partition has been broken down. So that's the business of unity that's been picked up. Chapter 4 and verse 3, he then says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Isn't it sad that really as you look through the history of the church, that must be one of the commands of God's words that we have failed with abysmally on so many occasions and we've let disunity and division 
fall in and how it must impact on everyday life. I guess your more recent studies in chapter 5 where it talks about this is how it's worked out, this is how it's worked out in the home, um, this is how it's worked out between the different members of a family, this is how it's worked out in the, in the workplace as well with employers and in, in employees. Um, all good stuff. But as individuals, and I think particularly as Christians, we have very strong default settings, don't we? We very easily fall back to old patterns and old ways of thinking. Um, I, I'm on Facebook. Uh, I'm more of a stalker than a contributor. Every so often I will post something on Facebook, but I usually find it a useful way of keeping track of my kids and also lots of others, and sometimes I wish I didn't know that or I wish I hadn't seen that. But there's one aspect of Facebook I find so annoying because in an area that's called the news feed, which is where you follow what everyone's doing, well, not everyone, your friends uh, are doing, um, there are two settings. One is called the most recent setting, and the other is called top stories. And for some reason, my computer keeps defaulting to top stories, which are the stories that are trending. And I don't want that. I want the most recent stuff. So I keep clicking on the most recent stuff. But for some reason, and I don't do it. Honestly, it's not me. It's the computer. <laughs> it defaults back to top stories. And I think, what is it doing there? Oh, no, I have to keep clicking back. But that, that tendency that I get in Facebook, I, I find as an individual, I keep wanting to go back. Yes? It's easier to go back to a, a previous way of thinking. And uh, as Christians, we have this constant battle of this default setting, of forgetting all the good that we've come into now as followers of Jesus Christ, of um, being disunited, as I said, where there's this great call to look what God has brought you into, look how he's reconciled you not only to him but to each other as well, and we somehow want to bring division into this. And, and the tendency that I have to drift back to the way I was. And this is not just an internal problem that we have as individuals, uh, to return to the old nature, the old way of doing things. But it's, a, it's something that someone else wants us to do as well, to return to the old way. We have a very real, a very powerful enemy who wants to draw us away from all the good things that you've been looking at in Ephesians. And that's what we're going to have a look at today. And that's what Paul is particularly picking up on in these last verses that we have in Ephesians. We have a tendency to go back and forget all the good that we've come into, all the good that Christ has implanted in our lives. And it's not just an internal battle but there's somebody else who is trying to force us back as well. So that's why in verses 11 and 12, he says, you need to know your enemy. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We have an enemy. He has a name. He's named there the devil. Satan goes by other names and titles throughout the Bible as well. But he doesn't just work by himself. He has those who work for him. Verse 12, rulers, authorities, powers, spiritual forces of evil. 
there is an enemy of God's people. Now, I am acutely aware that for sophisticated 21st century Westerners, this can just sound oh so fanciful, can't it? Um, isn't this to do with sort of a medieval worldview? Isn't this to do with spirits and ghouls and dark powers? Okay, if you're into Tolkien. Okay, if you're into some other fantasy writing. Okay, if you're into those films that are very popular these days that talk about these sorts of things. But it is fantasy. It's not reality. Surely, this isn't talking about real stuff here, is it? Well, yes, it is. These are very real things. The devil is a very real person, very powerful. And we ignore this stuff at our peril. We really do. Perhaps one of the biggest things that the rise of militant atheism has caused amongst our society is, first of all, of course, a disbelief in God. God has been erased from the picture. But perhaps even before that, there's been the erasure of Satan from the picture. That he's been removed as well. There's no heaven above us, there's no hell below, says the song Imagine. All supernatural things have now been remo removed from our thinking. And that sort of thinking can infiltrate the church as well. Of course, we believe in God, yes. But do we really believe in the devil? Do we really believe in the evil forces that he has at his power, at his side? We have an enemy. A formidable enemy. Paul says he is very clever. He uses schemes. Talks about that in verse 11. Um, the main task of the devil, as Jesus said, is to kill and to steal and to destroy. That's what he's out to do. And denying his influence, denying his power, doesn't remove him. No, it actually backs up what he's trying to do. So we need to act in a way where we understand that we have got a real enemy. The trouble is the church tends to swing between two extremes here. There are some in the church, and perhaps not so much here in the West, although once or twice I've come across those who attribute everything that goes wrong to the devil. I've sometimes sneezed in somebody's presence, and somebody's come to me and want to lay hands on me to get rid of the, uh, the spirit of the sneeze from me. I don't think that's quite how they put it, but they saw that the cold that they thought I was getting was of the devil. Okay? But then we go to the other extreme, and we put that everything that happens, everything that bad that happens, is just down to, well, the world and the way that things go. Um, we, we fight intellectual battles. We fight other sorts of battles, but they're not spiritual battles that we fight. Now, of course, we've got to come somewhere in the middle to realize that the devil uses all sorts of schemes, all sorts of individuals, but he is behind it. Who is behind the rise of militant atheism? The, the devil is behind it. Now, I'm not saying that Richard Dawkins is the devil incarnate. I'm not saying that. But it is the evil one that is bringing that philosophy into our society. And we must understand that. We must believe that. If we don't, we will not be able to tackle these sorts of attacks that come upon the church. 
We must know our enemy. He is very real and he is formidable. Therefore, Paul goes on to say, know your armor. Know the resources that God puts at your disposal. Know the toolkit that you have to stand up against the evil one and his ways. I had a, a friend once, a lovely man, Gordon Fowler. He's now with the Lord. He died a, a few years ago. And uh, he was one of the most resourceful individuals that I knew. Um, in any situation, if there was something you needed, he had it on him. I remember being at a motorway service cafe. And we'd ordered some coffee. And this was in the days before coffee in motorway service stations uh, turned out to be quite reasonable. There was a time when I remember ordering coffee and thinking, why have I ordered this stuff? It's horrible. And uh, we'd ordered this coffee. And it came in one of those stainless steel coffee pots. And we poured it. And none went into the cup. It all went over the table. You know the sort of thing? But it didn't phase Gordon. He fumbled in his pocket and he bought out a pair of pliers, because you always carry a pair of pliers on you, don't you? <laughs> and he tweaked the, um, the spout of his coffee pot just a few times, a couple of experiments, and then it poured perfectly. He could have spent the whole day at that motorway service station putting every coffee pot right. In every situation, if you wanted some sellotape, oh, we've got some sellotape, some blue tack. I, often, I said to him once, have you got an oxyacetylene welding kit on you at the moment? I just <laughs> no, I haven't got that, but I've got one at home. He said. I remember he was one of the very, this is a bit of a sidetrack, this. He was one of the very first people who, who had a calculator. All right? And he was one of those individuals that um, whenever he had an opportunity to share his faith and his love for Jesus, he would. And he picked up a, um, uh, a hitchhiker and got into conversation with him and told him about the Lord. And then when he got to the place where the hitchhiker was getting out, he said, oh, I, I want to pass a piece of literature onto you, because that's something else he carried with him, is pieces of useful Christian literature. So he fumbled again in his pocket, and he pulled out this little booklet. He gave it to this man and said, read this, and you'll understand more of what I've been talking about. So the fellow took it, and he goes, oh, thank you, and he, he went off. About two days later, Gordon wanted to find the instruction manual for his pocket calculator. He couldn't <laughs> find it. <laughs> and he realized, oh, I gave it to that bloke. Imagine what he was thinking. Yes, I, I really think I want to find out that eternal life. What? <laughs> anyway, that was Gordon. He was prepared for any situation. He had the right tools on him. Paul says, we have a real enemy. But God has given us everything that's necessary to cope. More than cope, the word stand is used here. God has given us all the kit so we can stand. Do you see how that word is used there? Put on the full armor of God so you'll be able to stand your ground. So when everything else has taken place, you will stand. Now what does the word stand mean in this particular context? Because we use the word stand in lots of different ways, don't we? we um, that speaker there is on a stand. Okay, uh, When we finish, we will sing a hymn, and no doubt we will stand. Does it mean it in that sort of almost passive way? No, there's something more behind what Paul is saying here. He's talking about taking 
a stand. Um, last Thursday, I was speaking to a group of children, and I used one of my favorite stories from the Old Testament. Um, they just asked me to pick up on an Old Testament character, and rather than doing some of the more famous individuals from the Old Testament, I thought I'd do somebody quite unknown, uh, a prophet called Micaiah. Do you know the story of Ahab and Micaiah? It comes towards the end of Ahab's life. Ahab, that king who just led God's people well away from the worship of the one and true God. And right towards the end of his life, he wonders whether he should go and fight a battle. And he has 400 advisors who he says to them, should I go and fight this battle? And they were all yes men. They were all nodding their heads. Oh yes, go and fight the battle. You will win a great victory. But there's somebody with Ahab at that time, in fact the king of another country, who says, haven't you got somebody who's in touch with God who can find out what God says about this, whether you should go and fight the battle? And Ahab says, yes, well there is one individual, but I never like talking to him because he always tells me what I don't want to hear. <laughs> Which is often a good advisor to have, really. And that's Micaiah. And Micaiah comes along. And so Ahab says to him, should I go and fight this battle? And Micaiah looks around at these 400 nodding heads, a bit like the old Churchill advert. Oh, yes, oh, yes. And Ahab says, should I go and fight this battle? And Micaiah says, oh, yeah, go and fight the battle. You'll win. But Ahab knows that he's being ironic. And he says, um, no, come on, what do you really think? And Micaiah says, if you go and fight this battle, you will die. And Ahab says, there, I see. He never tells me what I like. Put him in prison until I come back from the battle. And that's the battle in which Ahab dies. You don't hear what happened to Micaiah. He was thrown in prison until Ahab came back from the battle, which, well, only his body came back from the battle. But Micaiah was a man who took a stand, didn't he? When everyone else was saying one thing, he literally probably stood up but in a stronger way took a stand and said, no, this is what God says. Now that is why we are given the armor of God. So we can take a stand in that sense. We're called to take a stand against the evil one and his ways. And thankfully it's not in our own power. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power and the armor is the armor of God it's in his strength that we take a stand so what's in God's toolkit what's in his armor now I'm not going to go into detail into each particular element that we have listed here and sometimes the um, illustration the idea of armor can be a bit of a distraction we need to see what Paul is talking about here these are the weapons that we use what do we use we use truth that's what we use Paul talks about this elsewhere in his writing that when we argue for the Christian faith we do not use deceit we don't try and con people what we say may not be palatable but it is always truthful. We always use truth. Righteousness. All that we do springs from the character of God and his righteousness. We use the gospel. The gospel is the power of God to rescue people. We use faith. That means when 
all circumstances and all other things seem to be indicating something else that's contrary to what God has said, we always trust what God has said. We use faith. Salvation. God rescues people completely. There's a breadth in what God has done in Jesus Christ. It encompasses all aspects of life. And we use the word of God. The word of God is the prime weapon that we use in this battle. And so he lists there the weapons that we have. Truth, righteousness, the gospel, faith, salvation, the word of God. And as we consider the battle that we are engaged in, we sometimes think those are insubstantial weapons. I would like something that's a bit more formidable. I'd like something that's a, a, a bit more powerful than that. Can't we have some other weapons at our disposal? Well, let me ask you this. Well, let me tell you this. With a gun, you can blow somebody's brains out and end their lives, can't you? Well, that's power. Wow, what power I can yield with, with a, a weapon like that. So with a gun, you can blow somebody's brains out. But with the gospel, you can transform a man's life. You can see lives radically changed by a response to the gospel. That's power. That's real power. So what sort of weapon would you rather have at your disposal? An arsenal of guns? Or things that can change and transform lives? And they're the sort of weapons that we have at our disposal. Let me read you again what Paul says. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 4, he says, The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. What are the weapons that this world uses? Well, they're the physical ones, like guns and bombs and tanks and fighter aeroplanes. But it's also lies and deceit and cunning and espionage. No, we don't use those sorts of weapons. On the contrary, the weapons we have have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. They're the weapons that we use. A formidable set of weapons that we must realize. These are the weapons that are at our disposal. These are the weapons that we use. So no, you have an enemy, a very real enemy. How do you fight him? You fight him with the weapons that God has put at our disposal. The weapons of truth and righteousness and the gospel and trusting in him, faith and salvation and the word of God. Therefore, in the light of that, in the light of the fact that we have a real enemy and we have some formidable weapons, what does he say in verse 18? Pray in the Spirit. I think it's a bit unfortunate, as you read this in the New International Version of the Bible, um, verses 17 and 18 are not only separated because they're separate verses, there's a paragraph break there, almost like verse 18 is a separate bit. He's, just, he's finished talking about the armor of God, and now almost as a, a supplement or an afterthought, uh, oh, and, and pray in the Spirit. I don't think that's the sense at all. The sense is, look, you have a real enemy, you have real weapons, so pray! Because that's the battle. You pray. Prayer is not an afterthought, something that you do afterwards. Prayer is the stand that we take 
against the devil and his schemes. Now I know it's more than prayer because we must preach, we proclaim, we do things as well, but the real battlefield is on our knees, sometimes metaphorically, hopefully, often not always that way. Prayer is engaging in this battle. We don't pray for the battle, prayer is the battle. It was Alan Redpath, a, a preacher, a writer of another generation, who said something like this, that most of us think that prayer is asking God to bless somebody or, or to work in, in, in this way. For many people, prayer is prattle. Prayer is not prattle. Prayer is warfare, said Alan Redpath. And one of the things the devil wants to do with his schemes is to reduce that, is to eliminate that is to make it not a part of the program of the church, when it's the vital part of the program of the church. In fact, it's the unique thing that God's people can do. Other people talk about situations, other people can work in situations. It's only God's people who get on their knees and pray about the situation. And that's what we should do in the light of the force that we face. With the tools that God gives us, Paul says, and pray. And what does Paul say pray for here? Well, he talks about praying on all occasions, with all sorts of prayers, with all sorts of requests. But he then goes on in verse 19 to say, pray for me. Pray for me. He finishes here with a, a prayer that he finishes the book of Colossians with in a very similar way. Let me just read you what he says in Colossians 4 and verse 2. He says, devote yourself to prayers, be watchful and thankful, and pray for us too, that God may open the door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. If you take both the Ephesian prayer that Paul has and the Colossian prayer as well, the two things, the, the, not the two things, the things that he prays for over those two prayers is he prays for, prays for clarity, he prays for boldness, he prays for the right words, he prays for opportunity, all to share the gospel. I sometimes do an exercise um, when I'm doing some seminars on sharing our faith. And I give a number of cards to uh, the groups and say, put these cards in a priority order of things that um, hinder you from sharing your faith. And I've written on these cards various things like lack of knowledge, um, bad experience. I've got about 10 things I list, and I've got some blank cards where people can write their own problems, their own issues on as well. And at the top of the list are always things like Paul prays for here. Um, fear. I'm worried about what to say and what people might say to me. And I'm so encouraged that those are the things that Paul says, pray for me. When it comes to sharing my faith, I, I'm scared about this. Pray that I may be given boldness. Pray that I may be given words. I find that incredible that Paul prays for the right words. A man who wrote a great deal of the New Testament, who you think wouldn't be short of words, says pray for the right words when it comes to sharing our faith. And this is where the battle is engaged. This is the battleground. 
praying primarily, I believe, for the spread of the gospel. That's what the focus is here. Pray that the gospel may be spread. Now, Satan will not worry if the prime focus of our prayer is for Susan to get better. Now, uh, there may be somebody here called Susan, but I just did pick that name at random, so forgive me if there is. If Susan is ill, even if she's terminally ill, uh, yes, we should pray for her. Yeah? And Paul talks about you make all sorts of prayers, all sorts of requests, so there's nothing wrong in praying for ill people. But I don't think Satan, in a sense, is too worried about that. Satan won't be too worried if our prayers, Lord, I just pray that John will pass his exams. And now I know for John, um, you know, that's important. And yes, we should pray for John to pass his exams. But if that is the sum total of our prayers, for people to have a, a slightly nicer life, to get on in their jobs, Satan will sit back and go, fine, you carry on praying like that. But if our prayer is for people to be saved, for people to come out of darkness into light, from death to life, for the gospel to spread, oh, that will upset Satan. And that's where the battle is, to pray for the spread of the gospel. We have a real enemy. God has given us an extensive toolkit. Therefore, <coughs> pray. Pray for the gospel to have an impact. And just one final thing. So many of the pictures I, I've seen, um, literally pictures of Roman soldiers you know, dressed in all their armor and then arrows pointing to the various parts of the armor. You know, the helmet is salvation and the shield is faith. Uh, that is great, and that picture sort of helps in a way to understand the battle that I'm facing. But of course the success of the Roman army were, were, was not sort of individual Rambo types who were going into a country and conquering the country. The success of the Roman army in particular was the fact that they worked as a unified force together. I believe even their shields could lock together. That's the picture that's being painted here, not just you on your own as an individual foot soldier, but you. You put on the armor of God. It's back to the unity that is so much part of this passage, of this whole, whole book here. It's something we're doing together, we're fighting this battle. So Ephesians is written to the people of God. You put on the armor of God and get engaged in this battle and support each other in this vital task of spreading the good news. And so the kingdom of God will be established and the gates of hell will not prevail against the onslaught of God's people. May he encourage us, may he challenge us as we think about these things. Let's pray together. Father, by your word, through your spirit, teach us and transform us, we pray. May we truly engage in this battle that we know only too well and with the weapons that you have supplied for us. May we stand, may we take a stand and may we honor you for we ask it in Christ's name.
Amen.